Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 8th of August, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish. I'm joined in the studio by David Scott. And uh, we'd also like to welcome Ian Davies and also Katie Jim Murphy. So we've got a packed news today. We're going to have a look at what Richie Sunak's been up to. We're going to have a look at a little bit of vaccines. Uh, we're going to be talking about online arms and national security bills and we're going to be looking at the effect on alternative media plus an interesting end to the uh, news as people seem to be now getting in the right direction they realize that something is badly wrong within the governments of nations across the world but we'll come on to that in due course let's kick off with Richie Sunak and of course he likes to portray himself as Mr Squeaky Clean he's always well scrubbed and presented uh, that's easy to do if you're mar ma married into a billionaire's family. But what caught my attention over the weekend was this. Rishi vows to jail child groomers for life. This is the Sunday Express. You can see a newspaper biased to support Ukraine, whatever. But we're interested in what Rishi is up to here. And there's only one way to label this. This is outrageous. It's so cynical, David. This man is mocking abuse survivors and the public because he's using child abuse as his lever to power. He thinks he's going to win over the public by making this claim, which we're going to take the uh, time in the news today to pull apart. This is a massive article, so they're really going for it. This is the man that is going to stop child abuse. Is he? Well, I don't think so. Let's just have a little bit of a look at uh, what he had to say. Uh, he said he's not going to let political correctness stand in the way of this horrific crime. Interesting here, David, because we've already got a little bit of a spin on what he's talking about here. Yes, and what he's not asking is the key question, which is why political correctness didn't stand in the way of any other crimes involving that same community. Um, they were arrested in large numbers for fraud, theft, and all sorts of uh, crimes by the police. It was only when it came to the young girls that suddenly uh, there seemed to be a political correctness problem. Yeah. Well, let's follow it through because I think it just gets worse. He said, I want to call it out for what it is and I want to tackle it properly. I have two young girls and I feel this very personally. Now, I don't like this because what it says to me is that he's not really interested in the effect on other people. He's only now trying to use his family as part of this uh, pretty nasty publicity stunt. He's bringing in his family to try and say, well, yes, I'm the caring father and I really care for other people in society who have been hurt. That's my personal opinion. I'm going to stick by that. But he goes on. Authorities are scared of calling out the fact that there's a particular group of people who are perpetuating these crimes. Now, I was fascinated by this statement because, of course, I think that uh, the people perpetuating the crimes are rather different from the people that uh, Richie Sunak would have us believe. But let's follow it on. He says this, it's a horrific crime. It's far more per pervasive across the country than actually we all realize. And we all know the reason that people don't focus on it. Well, it's amazing because of course, many, many people over a great many years have been standing up uh, as whistleblowers, as policemen, as people working in the child protection field They've all been warning of the scale of the abuse, whether it's in England or Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland. But each time 
what does the state do? It shuts down the investigation. So this man is peddling a very, very interesting line here, uh, David, and I wonder what has really put him up to do this. Yes, I mean, he's, he's peddling the line that it's all to do with political correctness. It's all to do with the fact that the police, the police were too shy that they might offend someone. Um, so they just, they just didn't mention the crime. This doesn't make any sense because they weren't shy about any other sort of crime. It's to do with how they viewed the girls, how they viewed the victims, how they viewed the nature of the crime, not how they viewed the community that was, that was, that was carrying out the crime. It was how they viewed the victims. Yeah. That was the problem, and he's not getting at that. No, he's not. When, when, I, when I see this man, and I'm going to use the phrase scrubbed up, when he's at his best, he's shaved and in his best uh, expensive suit, uh, I think of Tony Blair looking at the camera many, many years ago and saying, I'm a pretty straight sort of guy. That's what Tony Blair said to the camera. And of course, we then learnt during his tenure as prime minister that he was anything but straight. So is this just spin from Rishi Sunak or is he doing something really devious here? It goes on, he says there's a particular group of people perpetuating these crimes, and I think that is wrong, and I want to change that as Prime Minister. So here's the direct push now that you can elect me as Prime Minister because I'm going to get in there and solve uh, child abuse. He says this, we'll have a new task force at the National Crime Agency that's focused on this. We'll have a requirement for police forces everywhere to prioritise this. Now, of course, the National Crime Agency, if you look at its track record on busting child abuse in UK, has been appallingly bad. And I don't think anybody who's really dedicated to child protection is going to get excited at the idea that the National Crime Agency is going to get involved. And I don't think many people are going to get excited that police forces everywhere are going to prioritise it. Apart from perhaps law-abiding people in, uh, of Pakistani descent who may feel that they'll be getting special attention from the police force following this. Well, that's a very, very interesting question. Of course, when we've talked to uh, people in the Muslim community and indeed in mosques, uh, they are as outraged by this sort of behaviour as anybody else. But they're also puzzled as to why uh, the authorities won't take evidence and do something with it. But uh, here's the last part, bit of the quote from uh, Rishi Sunak. I want to make sure all police forces record the ethnicity, so I always have problems with that word, of those involved, which is currently not done because people don't want to do that. So now this is a sort of wishy-washy spin that uh, people don't really want to do the job of protecting children because they're a bit confused at the, really the woke agenda. That's the suggestion, and I, I, I just don't buy it because it doesn't apply to any other crime. And we've seen this uh, recently in Scotland where uh, a young girl was being trafficked, went for help, didn't get help, got uh, uh, given a contraceptive patch, and off, off she was, off she was thrown up. back out onto the, into the abusive situation. Uh, this was not involving... Um, people of Pakistani origin. This was this was a, a separate system, a separate a separate case, and it was the view of the victim that was at fault. They weren't able to to reach out with proper counselling and protection because they viewed the girl as essentially making her own choice, and they viewed the lifestyle as as acceptable. Acceptable. Yeah. Right. Well, 
Uh, Rishi Sunak, of course, um, which party is in? Just remind me, David. He would be a conservative. Right? Conservative party. So when he talks about the groups of people facilitating the abuse of children, we think that Rishi Sunak should take a good look at the Conservative Party and he should start by watching the following uh, clip, uh, which is former um, Tory whip Tim Fortescue. Now, this man was a whip during Ted Heath's government. We have shown this little clip many times before, but let's watch it again against the background of Rishi Sunak saying as a Conservative Prime Minister, he is going to deal with child abuse. Anyone with any sense who was in trouble would come to the whips and, and tell them the truth. They'd say, no, this, I'm in a jam. Can you help? It might be debt. It might be... Um, scandal involving small boys or any kind of scandal which um, a member seemed likely to be mixed up in they'd come and ask if we could help and if we could we did and we would do everything we can because we would store up brownie points if i mean that sounds a pretty pretty nasty reason, but it's one of the reasons, is if we can get a chap out of trouble, then he'll, he'll do as we ask for ever more. Well, there we are, BBC taking on camera an acknowledgement that if MPs got involved with the abuse of little boys, then the Tory whips would fix it so that effectively they could blackmail, that's the word I'm going to use, they could blackmail those MPs into following the party line. This is outrageous stuff. Has any Tory prime minister dealt with this? Is Richie Sunak going to deal with this? No, and, did, and Ted Heath didn't deal with it either. Of course, he was uh, involved in abuse and uh, it seems likely that blackmail of him over that abuse changed the, the history of our country in quite significant ways. Yeah. So we're following through the uh, Sunday Express article that uh, majored on... Uh, Rishi Sunak. And in the article, there was some comment from a very brave former detective constable, Maggie Oliver. Let's have a look at what she said. Uh, well, first of all, a bit of background. She resigned from the Greater Manchester Police, claiming that the force had failed the victims of the Rochdale sex grooming scandal. Um, she had been central to the Rochdale investigation and persuaded vulnerable and reluctant girls uh, to give evidence against paedophiles who had sexually abused them for years. Uh, but one of the victims she convinced to speak up, uh, sorry, to speak out, ended up being betrayed as a member of the grooming gang in the subsequent trial. Maggie felt betrayed, ashamed, and she resigned. She became a vocal critic of how police had handled the case. Uh, so that's the, the background to her, uh, as reported by the Manchester Evening News. Um, but uh, with regard to Richie Sunak's statement, um, she said that his pledge was headline grabbing. So uh, this lady saw, sees straight through what Richie Sunak is doing. It's cynical, it's very, very wrong, and it's, it's really outrageous when we think of the suffering, a uh, lifetime suffering of child abuse survivors. Um, she warned that uh, his, his plan to stop it is unlikely to happen, uh, without a massive overhaul of the criminal justice system. Now, this is where this lady, of course, is getting into the real world because she recognises that child abuse isn't going to stop until 
the state itself stops facilitating the child abuse. So never mind the focus on gangs, let's talk about the state agents who are facilitating the abuse of children. And if you think that's an outrageous statement, let's look at the first of two clips where I interviewed a, uh, a London policeman, John Wedger, back in 2018. Well, I'm here in the studio with former Detective Constable John Wedger of the Metropolitan Police. And uh, I first got to know John, we think, about seven years ago or something like that. And John and I met at an Alternative View conference put on by Ian Crane. I think it was the Heathrow event. Seems quite a long time ago, John. It was a while back, yeah. It was a while back. So a brief conversation uh, in a quiet corner of a very busy room was on the subject of child abuse and what was happening particularly in London regarding child abuse. And at that very first meeting, John, uh, you were able to say that in your opinion there were some very dark things going on in London. Of course, you were talking in general terms at that stage, but you were able to start to educate me at some of the things going on around children and the abuse of children in London. And then in the subsequent years, you've had a truly amazing story because eventually you got to the point of becoming a, a whistleblower, uh, not only on the abuse of children in London, but on the cover-up of that abuse. And in the interview that you, you did with me, an audio interview, which is already up, uh, it's been up on the UK Column website for some months now, uh, in that interview, you described how you became aware that children were taken out of um, children's homes in London. They were essentially being groomed, prostituted out. They were being given drugs to help that process. And you were disgusted to discover that this was an open secret. Children were coming out of those homes. Uh, they were going off. They were being used as child uh, prostitutes, they were on drugs, and the authorities who we would expect to uh, protect those children, so the children's home itself, charities, the local authority, politicians even, and certainly the Met Police, uh, those authorities, in your opinion, were not only not doing their job of protecting the children, they were turning a blind eye uh, while that abuse went on. Now, I gave um, uh, quite a long introduction to uh, John Wedger, but I've, I've left that for our audience today because it sets the scene as to exactly what had happened and what he had seen. I know Ian Davis is keen to come in, but we'll just see what John Wedger replied. Let's see where, what this former policeman said to me uh, as, uh, when he tried to do something about the abuse. You spoke out and the result has been a, a quite unbelievable attack on you by the Metropolitan Police. So we're going to say to people watching um, this edition of Insight, uh, please do listen to the audio about John because that gives you the background. You'll find that on the UK Column website. Tonight, it's huge pleasure to have John here with me in the studio. And what we're going to do is, is follow some of the subsequent events. So John, just very briefly, what happened from the time that you whistle blew on this, this really outrageous abuse of children in London? 
Oh, well, I mean, like I mentioned in our audio interview, um, I genuinely thought that as soon as I whistle blew that things would start going in the right direction. I thought I'd get the back in. I mean, as well, I mean, I'm coming forward in respect to some really, really horrendous and serious crimes. Uh, having worked as an investigator for many years and realised the protection that we would afford our uh, victims, our informants and our witnesses of crime, I thought the same would be afforded to me. And it was a total opposite. Right. So you, you, you have described, and I remember this ex exceptionally well because I was shocked at what you were telling me. Uh, you talked about um, being threatened, basically, in a professional sense and warned off within the Metropolitan Police for speaking out about what you knew. And ultimately, it got to the stage where you realised you had to leave the police force. You were trying to retire but they didn't, at that stage, they didn't want to let you go. They were stalling. And I believe they were bringing your professional conduct into question. Yeah, it's, it's strange what happens because it, I was also warned by other police whistleblowers that I was put in contact with. And that's namely Lenny Harper, who exposed the Hope de la Green, Maggie Oliver, who was the one who sort of brought forward about the, uh, the Rochdale child abuse cover-ups. And they both said the same thing, look, they're going to come for you and, and they'll come hard. And they did. And the, the onslaught was just, it was just unbelievable. But what was said to me by uh, my sort of OQ commander at the time, and he turned and said, you know, you, you're looking at, you carry on, you're looking at losing your home, your job and your children. So there's the brutal, uh, brutal reality of uh, what Britain's police force do in many cases. When you report the abuse of children, you're going to become the victim. You're going to become the target. And it's not only your house, it's your own children that are going to be on the line. So Rishi Sunak's got a big job to do because he's got to sort out the Tory party and he's got to sort out the legal system and he's got to sort the police system. Uh, Ian, I know you're very keen to come in. What's your thoughts? Uh, well, no, it was on an earlier matter, actually, but it was about the Tim Fortescue um, uh, clip. Uh, the one of the remarkable things that I always think when I see that clip is that what Fortescue was uh, morally squeamish about was blackmailing MPs. He didn't have any, he wasn't morally squeamish about paedophilia. <laughs> yeah, well, thank, thank you for that. It is incredible, isn't it? And the fact it's a BBC recorded clip. Did the BBC follow up with an in-depth documentary to find out what was going on? No, they just moved on. Indeed. Uh, Maggie Oliver was excellent on that. Um, she talked about a massive overhaul, and this is absolutely correct, because what we're seeing is corruption everywhere. And if uh, Rishi was, on, was honest and was, was determined to do something about it, he would first have to admit there was corruption everywhere, including, of course, in the Conservative Party. Yeah, absolutely. And on the subject of child safety, you know, what does the abuse of children look like? Well, of course, we've got the Conservative Party at the moment fully supporting drag queens in front of children. This was just a snapshot uh, from the internet. Uh, I focused in on Cornwall Live because, as you can see from the headlines here, Cornwall Live has really been making a lot out of uh, the drag queen story. But if you if you look at their reporting, they're not really focusing on concerns for child safety. Uh, they're actually promoting the whole of the uh, of the drag queen events. And why should we be concerned? Well, let's look at this little video clip 
Uh, I'm going to warn the audience that I've censored it. I've had to censor it. Any adult should be capable of watching it, but I felt for today's news, I needed to censor part of the image on screen. Uh, but this is a man challenging the police about the activities of one of the drag queens. And look at the bored disinterest of the police officer present. Good morning, officer. Good morning. My name's Danny. Hello, nice to meet you, Danny. Yeah, 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 we can do that. COVID. Yeah. What it is, officer, I've come here today with uh, a file of evidence, and I'd okay. like to assist me in the citizen's arrest of who's reading the story. Yeah. I believe I've got significant evidence in here that this guy should not be in front of children. Um, just for your own sake, I've got many number of convictions of child groomers and rapers under my belt. I've got 100% conviction, mate. So gathering evidence is sort of my little hobby, my little pastime, and it works. What I'd like to just quickly briefly show you is just a, just a few little bits from this guy. So this is some of his posts off his social media. So that's one of them, Love Has No Age, which is quite worrying, one of his posts. Another post is where you can clearly see his penis while in front of children. I've got high-res definition this. You can clearly outmake his testicles and his penis. He's got no pants on. You can see that. Here, he alludes to an 11-year-old that if he met in a gay club, he would have sex with you. got your body one more. Here, he's took a picture of a young guy's ass. He's just penetrated, and he's wrote on his ass, Ada was here. Also here, he alludes that when in a gay club, he likes to have his bum destroyed, which that man... Just on them four pages, I've got a whole folder full, should not be teaching children. So, David, who's, who's allowing that individual to be teaching the children? It's the local police. It's the uh, local education authority. Uh, it's the lo local library. It's the local council. It's the local child protection organisation. What we are seeing, of course, is a massive attack on children and the state, which should be helping to protect the children alongside the parents, is not doing its job. Uh, the police were there. The police were there to protect the drag queen and the event. They were not there to protect the children. Um, one of the most troubling aspects of that video is uh, that uh, uh, Danny reported that, that the drag queen was actually being taken from venue to venue in a police car, and the police were carrying the bags. The bags. Yeah. So this is ent entirely being uh, enabled by the police, supported by the police, and all these other uh, multitude of, of state agencies. Yeah. They are doing this. Yeah, Ian. It is, we've just heard you know, about Rishi Sunak's promise to investigate, for example, the, the grooming gangs in the north of England. And the problem seems to have been there that the state were protecting groups because they were worried about, and this has been, been openly admitted, because they were worried about the allegations of, in this case, racism. So now what we're seeing is them protecting people, and that's that, ever, that clip that you've just shown is prima facie evidence of them protecting people because they're worried about allegations of gender or transphobia or, or um, LGBT issues. So it, it doesn't really matter what the issue is. It is exactly same process so you know that they're, they're not that nothing has changed it's just a different minority group that they're that they're concerned about about um investigating uh, okay I, I totally agree with what you said just focus it back in what they're not concerned about is protecting the children 
So, uh, as I said, the board disinterest of the police, I think he was an inspector, the, the one on the left in that video, he clearly wasn't interested. My question would be, is he a supporter of Stonewall and the gay agenda, as we've seen on the police cars? Is he biased? And does he support the drag queen? In which case, he can't, he can't provide reliable policing. Uh, Katie Joe, we're going to move on in just a second to what many would say is another means of abusing children. But uh, as a mother, what is your take on what we've just shown on screen? Um, well, I was there. I went there on Wednesday. So um, I met Danny. Um, and if you, if you see the video again, you can see that Danny Glass is in the background as well. Um, and I've had a big chat with Danny Pills again this morning. Um, and as a mother, to see the police with no reaction whatsoever to the evidence, it shows me that we cannot rely on them, if I'm honest. Um, as, you, as you said, as Danny said, they, were, they are um, carrying the um, drag queen's bags. They are there for him. They're not there to protect the children. Um, and I didn't stand, it was clear when, when I went there on Wednesday, there were two sides. And I didn't stand with everybody um, that was protesting. I stood on the LGBTQ side just because I wanted to speak to the people there and to just find out where they were coming from. And it was quite clear, it wasn't about the children at all for them. It was about their rights. It was about how they felt, how they were discriminated against. And not once were they really talking about the children. Um, they also, I mean, I spoke to this one woman who was completely deluded. She, she basically said that we were the ones that were sexualizing the LGBTQ community. Um, and when I said, you know, do you think it's okay for children to be there at gay pride marches when people are wearing BDSM gear, gimp masks, strap-ons? Do you think that that's okay and not sexual? She said, that's, it's us that are sexualizing the, that attire, basically. Um, so I, I, did, I couldn't get through to any of them. None of them understood where we were coming from, really. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was pretty shocking, really. Uh, Katie Joe, thank you very much for that. And the fact you're there, you're reporting from the actual scene, I think is very important. I want to state here that you might not have been getting a response from um, the people there who were part of the LGBT movement, but UK Column is certainly getting contact from uh, members of the community who are gay, who are saying they are not happy at all which, uh, with what is happening around children. And I think we, we need to stress this. Katie Joe. We, we need more of them then to stand up because there was nobody there um, that I saw that was a part of the LGBTQ community that was speaking out and saying, really, drag queens, is the, the place for them is not in schools, in libraries and reading stories to children. So if you are, you know, in the days against groomers or feeling that this isn't the right thing you know, for children, then please speak out and please attend the libraries and support those of us that are concerned. Yes, thank you very much for that. Now, you, you've been monitoring, I think we're going to call it the abuse of children in a different form. It's very subtle, uh, but uh, the subject is vaccination and the damage to children as a result of vaccinations. You, we, we've got a clip here. It's a sound clip, uh, but it'll appear on screen as a little video uh, where a man in America clearly very upset and very angry 
because his child has suffered adverse effects as a result of having the jab. But the key, key thing about this uh, little clip is for people to listen to what the pharmacist says to him. Let's have a listen. Speaking. Yeah, hi. Are you a pharmacist? Yes, how can I help? Yeah, hey, I've got a question. My wife, um, against my wishes, brought my son, seven-year-old son in there yesterday, or sorry, a few days ago for a COVID jab, and he's now in the hospital with myocarditis. Um, and I was obviously not very happy with you guys or with my wife. Um, she told me that she was not told that was a potential side effect. So why wouldn't you have told her that? Okay. Um, sorry. Um, so it's quite a rare um, side effect as well. No, it's uh, not. That, no, it's yeah. not because I've been doing research. It's common. In the U.S., there's tens of thousands of them reported at the CDC site. So why are you not telling parents this? Um, uh, we might scare the parents and they don't want to get their child vaccinated. Yeah, so, so you don't want to scare the parents with something that is actually happening that's happened to my kid. Are you okay. out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? You don't want to Have scare you... them. You need to give them the right information so they can make a proper decision. What is wrong with you? You don't Have want you to told... scare them. I'm recording this conversation as well, and this is going to a lawyer next. Thank you for admitting that. So why don't you tell them? When when someone comes in there and says, hey, what can go wrong? What do you say, sore arm? Have you um, seen uh, the amount of dead people? Have you seen it? Has your wife asked before giving consent to give She asked child. what the side effects are. Does she ask? I'm not sure because I wasn't there. It doesn't the, matter. You're supposed to yeah. tell people this can happen. Now, my kid. So you know what the prognosis is? You know what it is? Possible death within five years. Twenty percent of people with myocarditis die. It is a permanent damaged heart. It is not temporary. Katie Joe, many, many people might hear that and they'd be put off by the fact that that man is getting pretty pretty loud, pretty emotional, but a parent whose child has suffered this sort of damage, are they entitled to be this angry? Absolutely, absolutely. I find that phone call really distressing to listen to. It really upsets me. Can you imagine having a healthy seven-year-old boy that has been injected with something and you had no clue what the side effects were, and now he's in hospital? He was perfectly healthy before. And as we know, that children aren't dying of COVID. Of course, he's, I mean, he's with, well with it. I think he's pretty measured, if I'm honest. Right. And of course, he, he's referring to the data. And uh, UK Column has reported a lot on the VAERS data, the American statistics on vaccine adverse reactions. And indeed, if you go to the UK Column website, we've got an excellent interview with French biostatistician Christine Cotton who looks at that data and warns of the dangers of adverse effects. But let's switch to a different style because let's have a look at this clip which you found, which is what the BBC would like children to believe about vaccinations. I just mm. need to roll your sleeve up a little bit like this. Mm -hmm. I think you are a very good doctor, Dr Bing. 
Very, very good indeed. Is the medicine in my arm already? Yes. Um, it didn't hurt hardly at all. Good for you, Bing. So there's the BBC, of course, going for the children's minds and kicking the whole thing into the long dust. Now, apparently that clip came in from one of our viewers, so we can say thank you very much to that person for alerting us. Uh, Katie Joe, it's disgusting that the BBC will not investigate the reality of damage as a result of vaccines. It's absolutely disgusting and they're doing exactly the same as they did with the adult, uh, the rollout of the vaccine with the adults now with um, within Cornwall. They've got a they've got a, a clinic now where you can cuddle a dog while you're getting your vaccine and bounce on inflatable football chairs and there's sensory this and that. And that, it's exactly what they did with the adults. Have a free Big Mac with your vaccine, get a free lap dance, have a free joint. It's ridiculous that they're having to sell this like they are. Um, and yeah, and they're not they're not talking about the side effects. How can you administer something and not let anyone know about the side effects? Yes, how can you? Well, David, you, you're coming in at a different angle here. Yes, but, but this, the, Katie Joe's point was, was spot on there. We've seen all sorts of incentives for children, just as we did for adults. And of course, this is all destroying the, the idea of meaningful informed consent. Uh, I've, I've got here a, a, an article which will be up in the stories we're watching section of the uh, ukcom.org website um, this afternoon. Now, this is from Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, and it's a, a very thoughtful piece looking at the history of vaccines and how they came about and where the technology came from and where the inspiration came from. And he concludes, uh, Jenner, uh, now a national treasure. Vaccination has also become a national treasure. Both exist in a realm above all criticism. This is never a good thing, particularly not in the world of science, but it has happened. Dare to critically examine either at your great peril. Try suggesting that the whole concept of vaccination was pure luck primarily based on a 2,000-year-old idea, you will be attacked, this I guarantee. Again, we're seeing a pattern here. Anyone who yeah. tells the truth will be attacked. Um, what, th this is an excellent article, but also I just wanted to cover one of the comments, many, many comments, and it's very interesting that the, the public debate is taking place in places like this, in blogs, in... Um, in um, journalism that has been displaced from the mainstream onto the internet. Um, and here we see a comment from one of the people who read this article. He said, nothing's new under the sun. On the subject of quinine, my grandmother is a hundred and a half. Strangely, the half is important to her. She's not vaccinated for COVID. Uh, she's hale and hearty, uh, other than registered blind. The only medication she's on is quinine, uh, which she take, she's taking for leg cramps uh, for a decade. She takes two buses and two trains to her holiday home alone. She likes beer and a cigarette of an evening. Uh, I took her to a minor, minor injuries uh, unit last week for what looked like an infected leg wound from a fall. The doctor asked if she'd had a booster. She said, I've never had a vaccine in my life. I've never been inside a hospital either. My great, uh, sorry, my granddaughter dragged me here in the promise of a trip to MS afterwards. Um, he high-fived her and took a selfie. So we see that some people are, um, are reacting in the right way. Um, it, con it continues, she was actually once in a hospital almost 80 years ago to steal back her baby, taken in with meningitis. The hospital sent a policeman to tell her the child was dying. 
And so she went in. The baby was laid out in a cold, bare room, alone, no blankets in the crib, just left there to die. She lifted him out and put him under her fur coat and walked out of the hospital. He revived once home, yet two days later the police came and arrested my grandmother, placing her in a cell on a Friday evening in the Gallow Gate of Glasgow with the prostitutes. Forgive me if I don't bow at the altar of medicine. Oh, and that baby is now my uncle. He's 76. So this, I thought this was really fascinating because it illustrates how long right, the assault on right, on, on, on clear thinking, on health, and on anything that, that resembles the truth has been going on. We see here from, from 76 years ago it was happening, and the police were being used even then to perpetuate essentially an assault on the family. It's not new. It's not new at all, and therefore there's something uh, much deeper than just politics driving this. Uh, well, let's um, say, if you like what the UK column is doing, then please uh, join us, uh, take out a subscription, support us, because we can only do what we do with your financial support. Uh, we can take donations, that's very kind, but also you can buy something in the shop. So the T-shirts and the bags still going extremely well. Uh, but as we've uh, added, there are a number of other items. You might like a badge to advertise us. You might like one of those pens to get writing letters to stop uh, this willful abuse of children by the UK government. And of course, we want you to take and share our information wherever possible. Uh, that's the whole point about putting the information out. And of course, if you can include the source links which get printed on the UK column website, that would be really excellent. Now, we, I mentioned in the interview clip with John Wedger, Alternative View, and I want to say that uh, Ian Crane did unfortunately die a little while ago, but uh, a team has been working extremely hard to get these events going again. So uh, the 4th of September, we've got an online version uh, which is being made possible by uh, Ian's uh, original team working with the UK column. Uh, Mike Robinson will be working very hard to get this out. We need people to come in and support this. So if you haven't already got a ticket to do this, please get on the uh, link shown on screen and uh, buy a ticket and make this happen. Because the intention is that if we can kickstart it with an online event, uh, then we can move on to having a full event where people come together in a hotel venue. And that, of course, gave the whole event of uh, the magic that you had speakers mixing with the audience and people having a lot of fun. So AV12, go and have a look at the uh, website there and please buy your ticket and support this so that we can make it into a big and great event again. And uh, also I'd like to um, say that uh, uh, Louise Collins has been doing some really good work with the mums in Wales in order to stand up against the sexualization of children through the uh, religious and sex education. And we've got a little advert clip for what she's been doing here. Should three-year-olds be taught about sex? 
Should three-year-olds be taught about sex? So this is a reference to the proposal by the Welsh government to make religious and sex education lessons compulsory for every pupil between the ages of three and 16. And now there are four mothers who are representing more than 5,000 parents and grandparents. They've begun legal action. And a spokesperson for the Welsh government says groups, including the NSPCC, are backing the proposal. But this is very interesting, isn't it? Because the, the, uh, this particular story, in this story, the Welsh government is pushing a particularly ideological form of sex education, which includes gender identity ideology sort of tucked into it. And people are kind of getting a bit sick of this, aren't they? Now it's going to the court. <laughs> Should three-year-olds be taught sex education? 0207 862 is the number. Give us a call. A group, this is really interesting, a group of parents is suing the Welsh government over plans to teach children as young as three about sex and gender identity. They want to overturn a proposal to make relationships and sexuality education Compulsory. The Welsh Government are being sued by a group of parents over a new curriculum making relationships. Uh, so there we are. If you go to Rumble, you can you can see the full advert and you can find out how to engage and support those mums. I've been able to interview one lady, Kim Isherwood, really fantastic lady, powerhouse in standing up to stop what's happening in Wales. OK, well, Ian Davies, let's bring you on because you've been on the tail of uh, the famous Doris, Ms. Doris. Uh, yeah, thanks, Brian, for inviting me on. Um, yeah, um, I wrote an article uh, on that's published on UK Column website um, that Doris spreads disinformation as the UK government continues to attack democracy. Um, and one of the reasons that I, you know, Doris is obviously the sort of the face at the front of this PR campaign to promote the Online Safety Act. Um, and obviously she's the minister responsible, so forth, but, um, or was. Um, so, but why was it, why could I say that she was uh, promoting disinformation? Um, well, if we look at some of the comments that she made on Twitter, for example, uh, the focus that she that she gave was very much on protecting. It was very much about child safety and about protecting against terrorist content online. But something that she kept reinforcing was this idea of protecting freedom of speech. Um, and there's an there's an example there of some of the kind of things she was saying. Uh, the bill has been significantly strengthened to tackle scams and fraud, protecting children, and safeguarding freedom of speech uh, is is key. Um, and uh, so, if we if we look at what the what the the bill actually entails, um, one of the things that she had a bit of a spat on Twitter with Kemi Badenoch about um, um, you know some of the content of the bill and Badenoch raising issues about potential risks to um, freedom of speech online. Um, Nadine Doris came back and. She came back with this idea, this notion, which is central to the legislation of the idea of legal but harmful. So this is this is legal information, which which in the government's judgment is nonetheless harmful. And she gives she's already given examples of what that might entail. Uh, one of the things that is that is cited is, for example, quote unquote, misinformation about vaccine. So what what we're looking at on its face is a judgment. It's a, it's a subjective judgment of information. There's, there's no, because they haven't defined what harmful means specifically, they're giving themselves room to make that subjective judgment. But if we look at what something that's key to the legislation, 
in section of the of the online safety bill in section 151 um this this is important because it, when they're talking about what now constitutes an offence, so they've created this idea of a harmful communication offence, bearing in mind that harmful is not clearly defined. So a person commits offence if the person sends a message, or, which could be online, as we'll see in, in, in a moment. It could be, for example, a tweet. Um, and then the false communication offence as well which is, uh, you know, about somebody spreading disinformation, either they're doing it deliberately. But the important part of this is that the, that the interpretation of Section 151 to 153, which contains those offences, um, makes it clear that this section applies for the purposes of Section 151 to 153 in reference to the sections of an offence to an offence under any of these sections. So a person sends a message if the person sends, transmits or publishes, then we're seeing this move towards saying that a tweet is a published statement, a communication. So that could well include a tweet so or, or a post on Facebook or a, or a post on any other social media platform. So, so Donnery's actually said a while ago that, that, that the government said and this was her response in part to the criticisms, that the government said it would legislate to make the UK the safest place in the world to be online while enshrining free speech. And that was a statement that she made in February 2022. So she was talking about this idea of enshrining free speech. Come to June, and the goalposts have shifted and bearing in mind that this was about the same time that she was having this dialogue with Hemi Badenoch on, online, uh, and here we see a Reuters report, um, the, the, this idea of enshrining free speech has changed because now, as Dory said, we cannot allow foreign states or their puppets to use the internet to conduct hostile online warfare unimpeded. That's why we are strengthening our new internet safety protection to make sure social media firms identify and root out state-backed disinformation. So then, but what do they mean by state-backed disinformation? Well, we then get this, this statement from um, Chris Phil, um, who talks about what, how, the, how that will work. They're going to link the Online Safety Act with this new national security, or Online Safety Bill, with this new national security bill, right? And what, what that means is by linking these two things together, and I'll just see what um, Chris Phillips said, uh, alongside our existing operational response and the current disinformation provisions in the Online Safety Bill, the government have also introduced the National Security Bill, introducing a new foreign interference offence, which will capture a number of state-sponsored disinformation efforts. This offence will target, target malign activity carried out for or on behalf or with the intention to benefit a foreign power. So what, what we're starting to see is yet more subjectivity being, being injected into this interpretation of what constitutes harm by linking it with the, national, the, the, the proposed national security bill. What they are doing is also adding in the idea of undermining national security undermining the interests of the UK with the but not necessarily that there is hard and fast evidence this is not 
by linking the two together, this is there's no hard evidence that this is the case. It is a subjective assessment of a person's intent, whether or not they were doing it to, in this case, benefit a foreign power. So we can now see how this how this is being joined together and what that will look like in terms of, well, state censorship. I mean, there's no there's no other way of putting it. So if we if we look at this is also from Chris Field's statement. A person engages in conduct for or on behalf or with the intent to benefit a foreign power. The conduct is intended to interfere in the exercise of rights, manipulate the way people use public services or participate in political and legal processes in the UK or prejudice the UK's safety or interests. The conduct constitutes an offence, involves coercion of any kind or involves making misrepresentation, for example, is a representation that a reasonable person would consider false or misleading. So what what they've done is by is they've ensured that they're using these terms like a reasonable person would consider. Well, what does that mean? Who makes this judgment? Who makes the judgment of what a reasonable person considers to be misleading? But also the idea that if you undermine public services. So what does that mean? Criticize the NHS if you participate in a political and legal process. So what you you criticise electoral systems. All of these now, are by, by joining this, these, these bills together, are constituting offences. So that what, was, what was said to be legal but harmful is now becoming, through this process, an offence. And a, and a really important part to grasp this is this all comes under this legislation kicks in if you meet what they call the foreign power condition. So what is the foreign power condition? How are the government defining that? So it is activity carried out with the intention to benefit a, pot of foreign power. This includes cases where a person's primary motivation is, for example, financial but a person also intends or acts in virtually certain knowledge that the foreign power will benefit. So, for example, a number of UK column reports recently have been looking at the situation in Ukraine. People like UK column and people like me have been trying to point out that the situation in Ukraine is not as described by the mainstream media. It's not as described by the political class. So you could argue, and the government almost certainly will argue, that what we are doing by, by, by making those points, by raising these issues, is intended to benefit a foreign power, in this case, Russia. So it doesn't matter whether you've actually in the pay of Russia, whether that's your intention, whether you intend to undermine the polity in any way, shape whatsoever. It is an entirely subjective judgment at the behest of the government or by the government. And, and this is obviously going to work through the regulator, which would be Ofcom. So if we start to look at how this is how this is going to function, an important part here is that Schedule 7 of the Imminent Online Safety Act, what, which is what they're talking about linking to this new National Security Act, 
So under that act, it is entirely possible that UK's column journalism will be categorised as foreign interference. Now, I'm using the example of UK column, but of course, this applies to any uh, media outlet. And specifically, I would suggest alternate, alternative media outlets that are critical of state policy, whether it's domestic or foreign. And the, the reason is, is not because there is any evidence to substantiate those claims. The reason is simply because the government has arbitrarily decided that the UK column's intent in this case was to benefit a foreign power. So censorship will then, the censorship as we know, will then, the, the nature, the bounds of the censorship will then be defined through secondary legislation. Um, and what this means is that Ofcom as the regulator will be given a broad uh, brought through secondary legislation after the after the primary legislation the act has been passed will be given in effect subjects that are out of bounds they will then discuss that with the social media platforms who will then use automated software and fact checkers and trusted media sites such as the bbc and the trusted news initiative to to make sure that for example, this report that we're that we're discussing now cannot be shared online. So they, the argument will be that your freedom of speech has not been has not been infringed because we're still able to discuss this, and we're and, and UK column, for example, are still able to put this report out. But you won't nobody be able to share it. You won't be able to share it via Facebook. You won't be able to share it via Twitter. And more importantly, for the viewers, the viewers won't be able to share it because it would have been pre-designed pre out of the system. It would have already have been censored purely by the nature of the discussion topic. And that is out and out state censorship. And that is what this legislation has always been about, as UK Column and others have been pointing out from the beginning. Ian, that's a, an incredible analysis. And I, I've just sat here quietly listening to it, to what you've been saying, because, of course, most people haven't got the ability or the time to go through the detailed legislation documents themselves. You've done that job for them and you've pulled out a really concise uh, summary. Uh, I want to say I'm old enough to have uh, been doing my bit serving the country during the Cold War time when supposedly we were defending the country against this type of government control, Soviet government control, which is now being unleashed in the UK. And we can see that cynically children are being used to drive it, to create the prison, to protect the children. We need Richie Sunak as prime minister. And what is he doing? He's linking an online harms bill to national security. This is a rat trap being built and a great many people need to wake up very quickly. And I, I would say if there's any lawyers out there watching us or particularly barristers or judges, you need to wake up very quickly because of course, when this revolution is complete, you will also be in the trap. Uh, Ian, we'll have more on this in extra time. Thank you very much for that segment. And coming from uh, what you're saying there, Brian, it takes us to the role the courts are already playing in uh, restricting free speech and attacking uh, journalists in the alternative media. Uh, so the one that's been most frequently in the news of late has been the Alex Jones trial in America. Uh, Alex Jones, not everyone's cup of tea, but he's now been uh, 
well, he was he was always a target for the BBC. This this uh, is a is a BBC article from August 2018, and the BBC are complaining that Twitter will not ban Infowars conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. The CEO of Twitter says it will not ban Infowars or its founder because their accounts do not violate the social media platform's rules. Well, the BBC were obviously not very happy about that, but they were happier only a month later uh, when uh, they were able to report that Twitter did in fact ban Alex Jones and Infowars for abusive behaviour. It's permanently suspended the accounts of Alex Jones and Infowars. And David, I, I just, want, just want to cut in there. Alex Jones' abusive behaviour and the BBC on the back of billions of pounds of taxpayers' money streaming out appalling violence and sex and promotion of drugs depressing material aimed at adults and children. The BBC is the worst offender of, of this attack on people's minds, abusive attack on people's minds, and yet they point at Alex Jones. Well, they point at a lot. We'll come to more, more people they're pointing at. Uh, here we see uh, Reuters reporting that uh, the jury's awarded $45.2 million punitive damages uh, against Alex Jones over what he said regarding Sandy Hook. And this is, as, as, um, as, um, as Mark um, was talking about uh, on uh, Extra Time on Friday. Mark um, Anderson. Uh, yes. Um, this uh, relates to not anything that Alex Jones did, but things that people who may have listened to Alex Jones did, uh, who contacted this family and, and, and harassed them. And all of this uh, secondary effect of, of allegedly the Alex Jones um, uh, reporting has been laid on him as his responsibility, which is extremely sinister. And in terms of um, the, the chances of uh, the press, of the alternative media being able to speak truth to power, being able to put out unpopular but essential and truthful information um, against the wishes of the courts, the government, etc. This is very bad news and very concerning. Uh, now, come to Britain now, we've got the Alex Belfield case. When we were broadcasting uh, on, on Friday during extra time, uh, the, tr the, the, the verdict came in. Alex Belfield was found guilty of four counts of stalking uh, and found not guilty of four counts of stalking. Uh, Belfield, uh, Belfield runs a YouTube channel called The Voice of Reason. He's an ex-BBC employee. Um, the BBC is reporting here in his closing speech to jurors. Uh, Belfield said he had a right to freedom of speech and some of the communications uh, were in his role as a journalist, holding the BBC to account. The full wording of the charges stated that he pursued a course of conduct that amounted to harassment. Um, all of the complainants and amounted to stalking and caused him serious alarm or distress. But he wasn't accused of physically stalking anybody. He didn't go near anybody. There was no violence. There was nothing like that. It was all online. It was his YouTube videos, his emails, and his FOI requests that were considered to be harassment. And this is now this has now resulted in a conviction, partially. And this is also very concerning. Here we see the um, the verdict. So against four uh, BBC officials, um, he was found not guilty. But against others, including Jeremy Vine, he was found not guilty in the charge of, of under indictment, but guilty of an alternative charge 
of simple stalking, right? So he was considered to have stalked Jeremy Vine. Now, Jeremy Vine is a, is a man we have criticised his reporting of the Ukraine crisis because he was saying that anyone who puts on the uniform of Vladimir Putin deserves to die. We found that offensive and appalling, and we considered that it was so bad that he really shouldn't be on air putting that sort of hate-filled um, uh, output uh, into the population. It's harmful. It's, it's toxic. We criticised him very heavily. Now, are we going to be on a charge for criticising what he says about dead, dead Russians? Possibly. It, it, would, it would seem that we are now at risk as well. Um, and then finally, we've got a, a small YouTube channel called Voice of Wales. Um, I noticed that they interviewed Maggie Oliver, and they're obviously talking about child abuse. Well, the BBC doesn't like them either. Um, Welsh YouTube channel he is labelled as racist um, and accused of expressing foul and unacceptable language and ideas. So its ideas have got to go. Um, now, one of these ideas, well, they, they interviewed Katie Hopkins. I mean, just the horror of, of a small, slightly built English woman giving her opinions. I mean, you know, this is, this is obviously a, a high crime right here. Well, I'm, I'm going to smile and just bring Katie Jo on here because, Katie, I've now met you in person. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a big man myself. And uh, I, we were able to see eye to eye, let's put it that way. And uh, yes, this is the beauty. Let's bring a little bit of humour because this is a very dark subject altogether. But when people start to do the right things and challenge this, it doesn't actually matter how big you are. It just matters that you are standing up to be counted and you're not letting the government get away with this stuff. So I'm going to say well done to all of the vertically disadvantaged people. Uh, who <laughs> they're not, and they're not all called Katie. <laughs> Now, no, uh, they're not all Katie. They're not all Katie. Well, some are. Some are. <laughs> now, uh, so the BBC were very unhappy about this. And, and another of the very concerning pieces of information about Voice of Wales is they interviewed prominent Welsh politicians. So this sounds like journalism to me, Brian, but the BBC yep. found it very concerning. And, well, lo and behold, Voice of Wales, two journalists, uh, now have a trial. Um, they've got a three-day trial at great public expense um, and they've entered not guilty pleas. Um, they were charged with, uh, charged under Section 691 of Public Order Act. It's an offence to ignore the directions of a uniformed police officer to leave the land when a senior officer presents, uh, present reasonably believes that the person is committing or is about to commit aggravated trespass. So this, this says to me this is a... Um, basically, the law being used as a means of social control because, because the authorities doesn't like the message that this channel is putting forward. It doesn't like their opinions, and it's therefore going to silence those opinions using the law, using the criminal justice system to crush them. To crush people. Ian, uh, we'll, we'll bring you back on at that stage because this is the critical thing, isn't it? We, we, we have a government of occupation, as we call them. Uh, it's an occupying power. And uh, what it is going to do is, is basically constrain us. We're not going to be allowed to think. We're not going to be allowed to talk. We're not going to be allowed to speak out. People really, really need to start to wake up to what's really coming through this legislation. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think is apparent is that there is no commitment at all from anybody in government that are pushing through this kind of legislation, nor from the BBC or the likes of the BBC, you hound small independent media channels like that one in Wales. Um, to, there's no commitment to any kind of democratic ideal. There, none. It is, it is the antithesis of democracy. They are under, I mean, they often we hear the politicians talk about protecting our way of life. And, you know, many of us might question what that means. But if it means anything in the UK, surely it means those basic democratic ideals, the idea that you can speak freely, the idea that you can express yourself, that you can have reasonable debate, that you can talk openly about your about the any evidence that you might be aware of that you want to bring into the public domain. We should be under absolutely no illusions whatsoever. All of this legislation is about ending that. It is about ending it. It is totalitarian and it is dictatorial. We are entering a dictatorship very, very quickly. And unless we wake up and stop this, then that's where we're going to end up. Uh, Ian, thank you very much. Um, totally agree with that as a summary. We're heading into very dark waters of a sort that we've never seen before. Some people are beginning to look a bit deeper than politics. Yes, yeah, so we've got we've got two clips here from essentially secular commentators in the United States, and they're both seeing something much deeper that's happening. It's underpins. It's, it's deeper than politics. It's deeper than culture. And they're starting to talk about it and they're starting to try and name the nature of the fight that we're involved in. Uh, the first one here is a clip from uh, Tucker Carlson of uh, Fox News. But leaving that aside, I would say the gender debate is about that. I am so powerful, I can alter the most basic course of nature, which is the gender binary. The split into male and female, complementary halves the yin and the yang. I can end that. But I also think there's got to be a spiritual development that is so destructive it can only be described as evil, long-term and short-term. It directly hurts children, which is how you know, but it destroys the society. And so I look at that and I'm like, oh, this whole spiritual warfare the evangelicals are always talking about. I'm an Episcopalian, I'll just admit that. I was actually kicked out of the church, basically. I would never actually go to an Episcopal church, but that's how I grew up. And so I didn't grow up in a world where people are like quoting Revelation you know what I mean? They were reading the Psalms like they didn't matter. So it's not like I'm quick to jump to the conclusion that spiritual warfare is at work. I just had no other explanation. Like, what's the other explanation? There isn't one. So, yes, we're watching a battle between good and evil that is playing out in spaces that we cannot see because it is a spiritual war, Amen. not just a human war. Amen. Amen. So uh, the next clip is, is from uh, Lionel of Lionel Nation, a, a, a channel we've, we've looked at uh, a couple of times uh, recently. And, and he's even more secular than, than Tucker Carlson than his general outlook. And he's seeing exactly the same thing. Yes, that'd be different. Why? Because our, we have no standards of belief. Which brings me to my next point. Our government... Our society, our reality has been hijacked, has been possessed by an evil spirit that I can't figure out. It's, it's the only explanation. It's the only explanation I can figure out. 
It's the only thing that makes everything make sense to me. We are possessed by a number of people. Some, some spirit, something, something out there that, because nothing makes sense. Nothing. Well, I don't disagree with that at all. I think we're into something way deeper than just politics. But of course, it's very interesting to see people who don't speak out in this way now starting to declare their hand. And we'll leave our audience today to think about that. But we'll also give you a little brightness to uh, end the news. Yeah, final slide here. This was uh, uh, someone did this cartoon, sent it to us. Uh, and we, hear, we see the uh, BBC executives taking the knee. Uh, and it's a small poem, said, A bright light called UK Column stood strong when darkness had fallen. Took on the BBC, made it take a knee, that mighty from blighty column. So thank you very much for that. And you see, I think that's the BBC kicking her back, kissing her backside, Brian. That's not uh, a, an image I ever expected to see. <laughs> well, there we go. Thank you to Jones Clay Toons for that. And uh, I'm just going to say that the support we have from the audience is very important to us. It keeps us going. Um, Ian Davies, thank you very much for joining us and that excellent analysis. Uh, we will be doing an extra time today. Ian will be there. We'll be delving into that aspect deeper. Uh, Katie Joe, thank you as well for joining us in the news. You will be with us for extra time. So be patient. We will be back as soon as possible for extra time. But thank you also all of our viewers worldwide for joining us on the news today. And uh, think about what we're saying, do your research, check what we say, and please spread the word. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank